0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a group of Ontario doctors and researchers have come together to form Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. It's a province-wide campaign to express the grave concerns for the safety and well-being of the residents of those facilities. We'll give you all the details. Scientists and health experts are launching a nationwide public awareness campaign to counter misinformation about COVID-19. We'll talk with some of the organizers of that fabulous organization. And the pandemic is taking an emotional toll on today's nurses as another has taken her life how can we support mental health of our frontline workers it's all coming up the bill kelly podcast starts now today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml let's talk about what's happening here in ontario with not just vaccines but where those vaccines are going to go and how they can be most effective and uh, there's some discussion about that that's happening right now the ontario government says it needs to take a strategic approach to covid 19 vaccine rollout plan that's not a bad idea Uh, given the shortage of the pfizer BioTech shipment coming into Canada. Global's Brianna Carnegie has some details for us. Ontario is pausing efforts to vaccinate healthcare workers. It's now focusing on getting shots to residents in long-term care and high-risk retirement homes and 10 days sooner than planned, given there are no further shipment delays. Ontario will not receive new doses from Pfizer this week, but it is expecting about 26,000 of them to arrive next week. After that, it's unknown right now. The province says it's still waiting for an update from the federal government. And because of the supply shortage, Ontario is looking at pushing back second-dose vaccinations for anyone that is not a resident of long-term care or retirement homes. That timeline could be 42 days rather than 21. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So how is this going to roll out, and how is it going to impact the people who need to roll their sleeves up and get things going? Uh, well, to that end, you know, we've had a number of discussions on the program about uh, the, the problems in long-term care facilities, and it started well, long before the COVID pandemic started, but it was made much worse by the first wave of the pandemic, and even worse than that, of course, because of the second wave. Uh, and we've had a number of guests on the uh, the show over the last couple of months to talk about what needs to be done. And uh, to that end, uh, Dr. Amita Raya and uh, Vivian Stamatopoulos uh, – who have been guests on the program many times, and more than 250 other Ontario doctors and researchers have come together to form a group called Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. And we're hoping that this is going to have some sort of an impact on government policy. Uh, To explain what's going to be happening, uh, Dr. Amita Araya joins us on the Bill Kelly Show once again, a palliative care physician specializing in long-term care, the co-founder of Doctors for Justice. Doctor, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Good morning, Bill.
0: Is there a groundswell of support finally here to understand that, that something needs to be done and the government has to start focusing a lot more attention on, on long-term care?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really, really hope so. I mean, uh, you know, you, you very rightfully so mentioned that long-term care has these long-standing systemic issues. And right now, I mean, our immediate concern is that in the second wave of COVID-19, I mean, we're in the midst of a humanitarian crisis in our long-term care homes. I mean, we've had over 1,500 people that have died so far Uh, in the second wave alone, 600 since January 1st, 2021. And the current rate of death is averaging 171 deaths per week uh, in the most recent data, which means that there's more than one long-term care resident dying each hour. So if this is not an emergency, I mean, what would be considered an emergency? And that's why myself and my colleagues through Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care have come together to beg and plead for the government to take these critical actions to save lives today.
0: Why are we in this predicament? I mean, that may sound like an, a, a rather elementary question, but I mean, you know, we've, you and I, Doctor, have had this discussion for a long, long time, months now, ever since this pandemic started to rage. Oh, well, it was a year ago yesterday, of course, the first reported mm-hmm. case in Canada. Uh, and we knew that these people were the most vulnerable. We talked about that at the time. The government even talked about that at the time. And you would think that protocols would be put in place, especially after the the, the way the government handled the first wave was, shall we say, ineffective. Mind you, there's a lot of other words we could use. Then you turn around and you see the story that we had this past weekend about an entire facility in Barrie. Everybody's infected. How how does this happen? How, uh, how will we, And why, I guess more importantly, are we letting our guard down?
1: Yeah, so I think it's related to two major issues, although the, you know, the concerns are definitely complex. I mean, issue number one is related to the staffing crisis. So absolutely, this is a critical point in our open letter where we're calling upon the government to address this staffing crisis urgently. What that means is that we need a massive recruitment effort to get trained staff into these homes uh, that can deal with all aspects of care. I mean, whether if you don't have enough staff, then it's hard to do Anything, infection control, making sure people get food and water on time, make, making sure people get medication on time. They have, you know, human contact and emotional support. And all of these should be non negotiables in, in everyone's opinion, really. And obviously, we have to make sure that the staff are well paid, they're getting paid sick leave to, you know, ensure that they're not working through precarious conditions. And we don't have a revolving door of health workers in these long term care facilities. You know, the second issue comes down to accountability and transparency. I mean, when you're mentioning bills, uh, you know, Roberta, Which is a private for profit long term care home in Barrie. I mean, they had inspectors on the ground there who released a report just a couple of weeks ago that showed egregious failures um, uh, with infection control, where they had COVID 19 positive and negative residents cohorted together in the same room. Why is that happening at this point during the pandemic? And why is the threshold for intervention so high? I mean really we need to lower that threshold ASAP. We need to get hospital or community based medical teams to step in right away. This is a matter of life and death and these people's you know, these people's lives absolutely matter.
0: And these are all so Common sense ideas and and something we've talked about. I've talked to the premier about this. I've talked to the minister about this, uh, and and the, the hesitancy seems to be uh, for them to actually get involved and 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 be proactive about this. And I think I used the example with you months ago about this, doctor. That you know if I wanted, well, I can't get a hamburger right now because everything's shut down. But I mean, you know, when I go into a restaurant, there's a there's a rating system right on the front door there, and it, and if it's not exactly. green, I'm not going in there to eat. We don't do that for long term care facilities. Uh, and the, you know, what would they have six. Six, I think, inspections across the whole province last year of all the 650-odd uh, facilities in this. We, when is the government going to get serious about the fact that they have a responsibility here?
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's what our group, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, has come together to, to ask the government to enact. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a group of over 250 people now, you know, physicians, uh, you know, leading researchers, advocates who, uh, you know, like we're just fed up and we're just so exasperated and frustrated by what we're seeing, the suffering and death uh, on the front lines. And I absolutely agree with you, Bill. The government has the power to take the actions today. Treat this as an emergency, and if we're saying never again, if we're using these words, and we really care about these valuable seniors, I mean, we would do that action. It can be done. Quebec, for example, has already shown us the way where we can rapidly hire 10,000 staff to work in these homes. Quebec, uh, during the summer, hired an infection control manager who would be present in each home to make sure that these mistakes didn't happen from the onset. So I don't know why our government is waiting. And, um, you know, we have to make sure that ab- above all else, rather than prioritizing the operator of the home, which is usually once again private and for profit, we have to prioritize number one, the well-being and lives of our seniors. These are our parents and grandparents, people's loved ones. I mean, we've just had enough.
0: Well, let's talk about that, and, and I know that one of your recommendations uh, for the organization you've, uh, you've worked with here, Doctor, uh, is end for-profit long-term care facilities, and it's, it's a contentious issue. The government shies away from it every time, and, and, and they've always got some rationalization for it that just doesn't hold any water. I mean, the reality is we know that an awful lot of the people that manage or are on the boards of some of these private facilities are former government officials, and some of them former MPPs and, or premiers i guess in one case so they don't they don't want to stir that that hornet's nest and and too damn bad i mean the problem seems to stem from that i know there have been reports that you and i have talked about that said that uh, there are some major differences between the privately owned homes and the publicly owned homes Uh, about level of care about how the people are staffed how many are staffed what kind of money they make as workers in those facilities uh and 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 by the way the public public ones aren't perfect either but i mean there seems to be a chasm here in the different level of care and and the government doesn't seem to want to acknowledge that
1: yeah bill i mean you're absolutely right i mean there is a chasm uh you know between a uh, private for-profit care and publicly owned uh, you know facilities i mean these inequities and these gaps in care existed before the pandemic but now they've been magnified in really what we can say is a cruel and horrific fashion i mean private for-profit long-term care homes have had far worse outcomes uh, as compared to public homes. And that's related to the fact that, well, one of the ways they generate revenue is by keeping their health workers poor. They're more likely to have, you know, part-time casual staff they're less likely to have people who are, pay, you know, being paid benefits. And what that means in the middle of a pandemic is they're more, much more likely to end up in these staffing crises and, you know, these scenarios where we hear of these, you know, appalling situations of neglect where people are ending up without food and water. And that absolutely should not happen. I mean, you mentioned restaurants. I mean, I would like to bring in daycares. I mean, we would never, ever allow this, you know, to happen in, in our daycare system. We would immediately remove the license and do everything we could to protect the lives and well-being of our seniors. Uh, another 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 point I wanted to bring up is many of these large corporations, uh, these private for profit corporations, have actually maintained their shareholder dividend through a pandemic. So why can't they contribute to ending this crisis by ending their profits, putting all this money immediately into the front lines to save lives?
0: Well, sure. And, and I know that uh, there was a recent study done that, uh, that we analyzed back, forth and sideways uh, that suggested that, well, yeah, there is a higher incidence of mortality and, and, and more severe cases in some of the privately run facilities. But that's because they tend to be uh, older facilities in, in large urban centers and, and the infrastructure is not in place. So well, why don't you fix it? Why, it, yeah. it should be beholden upon them to fix it. I mean, if the HVAC system is no good, if you've got five people in a room and, and there's not proper ventilation uh, or proper separation for this, do something about it. Don't just wring your hands and say, well, put that whoa is us, we can't do anything about this because it might cut into our profit margin.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's not fair to the taxpayer to be honest, Bill. I mean, you know, you're talking about these renovations. I mean, these are actually 1972 design standards, where the government asked in the in at 1998 for all homes to change these three or four um, you know bedrooms where you have three or four people living together in one room sharing one 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 washroom, and and you know I ask I you know I mean we all the listeners can understand. I mean, even before COVID 19 was an issue, I mean that would be a risk for any other infectious disease. I mean. You know, I, I can tell you that none of my patients really want to share, you know, a room with three or four other strangers. People value autonomy. They want their dignity, to, you know, to be you know protected. So that wasn't in people's best interest anyways. And now these private for-profit long-term care homes are actually asking for public money to do these renovations. I mean, they need to invest their own money into doing these renovations. And, you know, the question is still there. Well, why is it just these homes that have these problems? The reason is because the publicly owned homes have invested their own money. They don't have any third party to pay like shareholders. They've invested their own money and already done these, these renovations so far.
0: You know, it's, it's all a matter of priorities. Uh, when when Mike Harris became the, the, the premier of this province way back in in the mid nineteen nineties, one of the first things he did, as you remember, doctor, was he revamped the entire yeah. property tax system and said, well, because it was nineteen seventy two and it was just not fair. You had to pay what what you really owed, which really meant more revenue for the government. So they did that right off the bat, right out of the gate. They figured, okay, let's make sure that we get our fair share of that money. But they still here we are in 2021 we're still using 1972 standards for long-term care facilities they haven't done a damn thing about that
1: yeah i mean you're absolutely right it is a question of priority but i'll tell you that at this time i mean you know we, we're launching this movement doctors for justice and long-term care But I mean, this is based on, you know, advocating for the, for the people we love and care for, which is our duty as physicians. Our duty as physicians is not just to look after our patients, but to look after the well-being of our communities. Specifically, when we're talking about long-term care, I mean, it's, it's about our vulnerable seniors. These are people's parents and grandparents, people's, you know, aunts and uncles, loved ones, you know, the people who built the very society, you know, that we cherish. We've seen them suffer so much. We've seen people die of you know abandonment and, and neglect, and we've seen that that that's you know that suffering also extends to their families, who you know definitely deserve better support and better recognition for their essential caregiver role through this pandemic. I mean, I want to remind all the all the listeners: this is not a partisan issue. I mean, 86% of Canadians actually want to make uh, you know long-term care public. Everybody really recognizes that this is this is really a broken system, and it's time to overhaul this system and. Change change. change, you know, how this care is offered for our seniors, which starts with a bigger investment, improving staffing and better accountability
0: well and as you've articulated once again uh, it's not as if there isn't a a, a prototype that they can follow Uh, quebec has the same challenges every province has the same challenges but they addressed it this past summer and they put a whole pile of money into this Uh, instead of you know the ontario solution here was well we're going to try to increase the number of staffing there within the next two or three years we should be up to the levels we think we should be quebec did it in six weeks and they not, and they paid them more, and they trained them, and paid them to to, to be trained. Uh, it's it's going to cost money. That's fine, but I mean, you know, if the government's worried about their bottom line, uh, then you know we got a big problem here.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, the government is sitting on, I, I believe, over $12 billion of funding uh, for the COVID-19 response, which they've received from the federal government. And once again, when we're in an emergency situation and in a humanitarian crisis, which are outlined in our long-term care homes, where people's lives are literally on the line and people are dying by the hour, I mean, this shouldn't be about dollars and cents. In the end, this should be about providing the best care for people who who deserve this care in and out. It should be about protecting their health workers, making sure that, you know, we we also have family caregivers that are allowed entry into these long-term care homes. And, you know, the threshold for intervention should absolutely be so low in these long-term care facilities.
0: (sighs) Well, I know that one of the tenets of the oath you take and others uh, in the field, that, in, in medical field, doctor, is to, first of all, do no harm. I, I just wish our elected officials were held to that same standard because that seems to be part of the frustration here. Uh, I, I thank you once again, first of all, for your time today, but for your dedication and, and passion for this. Uh, we need loud voices to continue to speak up, doctor, and you've been one of the best. Thank you so much for this. We'll stay in touch.
1: Yeah, thank you, Bill.
0: Take care, Dr. Amita Rai, of course, palliative care physician, uh, and the uh, the organization, of course, uh, is Doctors for Justice in long term care. And this is not an issue that we're going to let go so easily until we start seeing some positive action here in the province. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So a number of healthcare professionals, doctors, etc., have decided to to be more proactive, and it's a group of healthcare experts that are actually launching a nationwide public awareness campaign. Don Kelly has the details.
1: The Science Up First initiative led by the Canadian Association of Science Centres, COVID-19 Resources Canada, and the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta will use social media to debunk incorrect information and boost science-based content. Anyone interested in participating can follow at Science Up First and use the Science Up First hashtag on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The campaign says a marked rise in misinformation and conspiracy theories represents a threat to the health and safety of Canadians. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press, Toronto.
0: This is just a fabulous idea to try to get rid of the misinformation and, and some of the, the problems, of course, that people simply oh, I saw it on Facebook, so it must be true. Uh, I want to talk with one of the founders of this organization. Dr. Tara Moriarty is a co-founder of Science Up First and an associate professor at the Faculty of Both Medicine and Dentistry at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of advocacy, especially when it comes to trying to defeat this pandemic. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 anything against misinformation, though, is is a great first step in doing this. It had yeah. to be an awfully frustrating, Doctor, over the last 12 months, especially since we've been dealing with this now for 12 months in Canada, uh, yeah. to see a lot of the misinformation that was published and, and being embraced by an awful lot of people over the last little while.
2: Uh, yes. Oh, I, I mean, it's the, the misinformation is hugely problematic. And, of course, in this epidemic... Um, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the COVID vaccines, the misinformation is actually costing lives. So if people are not vaccinated, there are people who will die as a result of it, um, whether it's they themselves or someone that they love or someone that they, um, someone that they work with. And um, so it's a, an, a hugely important issue, um, which is why we're all working on this right now because we can't afford to wait uh we've come together sort as a volunteer group um to move immediately. Um and uh you know, we're not perfect, but we're we're getting going and uh we have to do something about this and involve as many Canadians as possible.
0: How Difficult is this, and how do you develop a strategy to do this? I mean, there was a tsunami of misinformation that's out there, and uh, and where do you begin in a situation? Vaccines is as good a place as any, but there's so many other aspects of dealing with the pandemic that uh, that people seem to have different opinions on, shall we say?
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so first of all, uh, we know from um, we know from research about misinformation that one of the things that's really important to do is simply to. Um A kind of get out and fill space with good information, so one of the reasons that misinformation creeps in is when there's uncertainty um, when there when people aren't really sure what's going on before large institutions, for example, um, start uh, kicking in and responding um, and and getting information out there, uh, this starts filling up all of the space so it's often the first information a lot of people hear. Because it's rumors, it's, it's all of this kind of stuff, and it's very hard to dislodge that. So, the idea of what we're doing um, is a large part of it is that we want to build um, a huge group of Canadians in general um, who want to push back against misinformation, want to help fill the space on social media with this information as much as possible, so that um, so that some of the so. with 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 good information so that some of the misinformation doesn't uh, fill up that space as quickly. And we also want to empower a lot of Canadians to um, know that they can find a place to find good materials that they can use on social media themselves. Mm -hmm. They may not be an expert in a particular area, um, but they know that the content will have been vetted by experts and will have been vetted for accessibility and for effectiveness. Um, and that they can then use that themselves to share um, on social media or if they're responding to someone um, uh, someone they see who is posting something that is untrue. Um, it's, it's a way to try to empower uh, everyone to be part of that. But the idea is to make it um, kind of a movement for Canadians because so many people are frustrated um, and so many people don't really know what to do about it. Um, so that's also what we're trying to do is to uh, get good content out to people, go and find all the Canadians who are developing good content, really effective content, and are not getting very far. Um, so if we can really amplify their voices and get them to more people, um, that will also help as well.
0: Doctor, how do you do with the... I guess I don't want to say lack of information, but I mean, we're learning about this. I mean, we just talked about it was one year ago yesterday was the first confirmed case of, of COVID in Canada, in Wuhan and other places. Of course, it was a few months before that. But but, but this is relatively new. This is a, this is a virus, a, a coronavirus that's relatively new. So we were all learning from this as we were going along, which yeah. I think is probably one of the sources of, of misinformation. Like, how how yeah. can I believe these doctors? They said, don't wear a mask back in February. Yeah. Now they're telling me to yeah. wear a mask. And so it's it's got to yeah. be awfully frustrating. Frustrating, isn't it, I would think?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, that's always, you know, that's always something that's important. And it's hard. It's hard. Things change rapidly. We have to be getting out and talking about it as quickly as we can when things change. And we need a lot of people out there talking about why things have changed. There's new evidence um, that uh, we know more than we did. And this is why these things change and we need we need more voices getting out there, and especially getting out onto social media because this is where a lot of people get their information. Um, there aren't as many people anymore who listen to radio, although I do all the time. Um, you. Who you know even watch TV. So social media is really important for getting that out there, um, and for reaching people, and also in in different languages as well because there are a lot of people who get information. And they may not get it from uh, conventional media sources in Canada, and they're uh, using social media to get uh, information in their own language as well. And there's a lot of misinformation um, in these settings as well on social media.
0: And I think a lot of people are using that misinformation to try to justify what they may think about this. I mean, as, as we've yeah. tried to explain on this program, science is ever-evolving. I mean, you know, yeah, we used to tr- we used to treat fevers by putting leeches on people. I mean, we're, we're smarter than that now, so we don't do that anymore. Yeah. And and we were learning about COVID as we were going along and, and, and yeah. trying to learn about it and treat it at the same time, doctors probably are trying to fix a car while you're driving it down the highway.
2: Well, I mean, uh, yes, a little bit, uh, yes. <laughs> That is very true. Um, but but that's also um, the important thing is that people are um, hearing uh, scientists talk about how things are changing or hearing experts talk about how things are changing um, and are recognizing that there still will be changes in some information, um, and that um, helping people to sort of understand that you uh, what kinds of sources to be looking for? what kinds of information to trust? Um, you know there are always rumors and reports coming out, and generally you have to wait for um, y- you know for national organizations or for for organizations who are staffed by um, by many experts and professionals and who have uh, reputations as well to maintain for them to issue, you know, a considered careful statement about something, um, you know, about new news that has come out, for example, um, and that those statements are very important because, um, you know, the the assertions that one person, you know, makes on Facebook or someone who puts a meme up somewhere and other people start sharing it and no one knows where it comes from, those are not, um, those can cause a lot of, problems. I, I mean, uh, you know, Snopes just had to issue a fact check two days ago or I think it was yesterday, saying, No, the vaccine does not turn people into zombies <laughs> because there's there's a there's a <laughs> there's misinformation out there that is um made to look like a cnn uh television shot that is claiming that people who are vaccinated are then turning into zombies and going out and eating other people. I mean and it was circulating widely, right? I mean, we laugh, but but you know, you have to be careful. Just like media say, in a crisis, um, you have to wait. Like those early reports are often wrong, right? Uh-huh. You have to wait until there are well substantiated uh, reports and information out there. And that's part of this too, is helping people understand uh, that yes, things change and yes, it's moving fast, but we've got to be careful who we listen to and we've got to be careful not to immediately follow rumors um but sometimes you know when when major institutions are getting out there to get these statements out to people they're still using really traditional means of doing that and it's hard so you need a lot of people out on social media who are helping to get that information out to as many people as possible helping to helping to sort of uh balance out or drown out, perhaps, um, as much of the rumor as possible so that what people see first, or at least at the same time as the rumor, is good information.
0: Well, and it's got to be awfully frustrating for the medical profession I know it was with a number of the physicians and others that I talked to over the last year doctor uh yeah. to to know that a lot of those institutions that were trying to message uh those messages were being corrupted with political interference uh, much to yeah. the frustration yeah. of everybody like the CDC and yeah. so many other great organizations uh yeah. which causes a bit of a credibility gap and th- and that was problematic yeah. i like I like to think that we've that you know that we've addressed that to a certain extent and, and that's not going to be a major factor anymore but it, it yeah. was it's it helped us substantiate some of these crazy things that you just Uh, talked about
2: i know i know there can be missteps right yeah um and in that sense so uh so certainly i mean i mean you know we we're not we will probably make mistakes right i mean every organization does especially because we're a loose coalition of a lot of people working on this. We're all, we're independent. We're all, we've all been working in this area. Um, We may not always agree, you know, we won't, we won't be perfect, right? But we will, we will do our best. And, and there is that, that at least we're independent. um, And that uh, we're just, we're a whole bunch of people who uh, have, have had it, right? And want to be able to do something about it. It is a matter of life and death and uh, it's time. It's time to do this and it's um, it's time to find a way to support Canadians who want to be part of this as well. Um, and, and we can't wait. I mean, we can't sort of wait. We can't wait till the conditions are perfect and all the plans are ready and everything else. We have to start acting. Um, and, and, and that's it. You know, there it's, Dealing with misinformation, especially around COVID, um, preventing that misinformation is going to be really important for all of us to get back to normal um, because people who believe a lot of the misinformation um, or the belief in that misinformation will slow down progress um, in some areas and will prevent us or slow us down from uh, controlling case numbers and Getting the epidemic under control and and all of this one day ending.
0: I, it's sometimes I guess you have to wonder how far back you have to go to begin this process, this uh, this education process. Uh, you know, I would have flat off the top of my head in the, the year twenty twenty one most people would understand the efficacy of vaccination in situations yeah. like this but apparently not uh, well i, I i'd no, like to think the, the no. ma- majority still do but there's still some out there that as you say because of social media but the nice thing about what i'm seeing here with what you and and your uh, colleagues are doing here doctor yeah. is you're you're using that as the battleground uh, you know when yeah. you're, you're you're on facebook you're on uh tweet yeah. you're on instagram that you, yeah. that's where the message is you know you don't put yeah. an ad on uh, in, a, in a daily newspaper expecting no. people that are 19 yeah. or 20 years old they're, on, they're on their 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 phones.
2: Yeah, exactly. A lot of people are, right? I sure. mean
0: Sure.
2: I mean, honestly I mean I'm I'm a huge reader and but I would say that starting a few years ago I started reading news quite a bit on Twitter. I would pick things up that way and I don't read as much as I used to. And a lot of people are like that too. We're increasingly on social media. I never thought I'd be a social media person, but there are a lot of people over time who end up there, it's the way to talk to family. It's the way to talk to friends. It's just it's it's increasingly part of many of many of our lives, and um, and so we need to be acting on social media. And this is also part of sort of a movement where, um, for example, it's becoming more acceptable for doctors to be on social media advocating. Um, this is something that professionally was not always all that well accepted, and it's still not in many circles. Um, scientists, I mean, it's more common for people who are academics, um, because we, um, at least those of us who have tenure, have job security. So we can, you know, we can be out there advocating. Um, but there, there has been an uneasiness about, about people with the expertise who need to be out there talking. Um, there's been a bit of discomfort with having people out there advocating publicly um, and personally, Um, you know, because of concerns about how it could reflect on the profession. And, you know, some of those are fears and concerns that uh, I guess also date back to, um, uh, you know, I guess an older style of uh, managing media relations and seeing the relationship between organizations and the general public. And that. I think it's glad, or sorry, it's good that some of that is eroding, um, and that more professionals are able to be out um, and are more comfortable being out talking to people directly, um, because also direct access to people who can answer questions it builds trust, right? Mm -hmm.
0: People, if they
2: know, even if it's just social media, if they are, if they could talk to you, if you answer questions, it builds trust. It's crucial to do. And I'm running nightly Zoom sessions every night from 8 to 10 about um, people who may have questions about uh, COVID-19 vaccine safety. Initially, it was for people linked to long-term care and retirement homes. Um, But, you know, what we see every night is that most people have perfectly normal questions about the vaccine. They just need someone to talk to about them. They need a way to there's so much information out there that even if they tried to focus on the good information, there's so much that it's almost impossible to filter. We're human beings. Um, We do benefit from the personal, right? From seeing an individual who's out there saying something on social media or talking to someone over zoom. Um, And in that sense, I think that this is really important and this is partly why a big part of why we're doing this as well um, is because it, to uh, identify and support other people, other people with expertise who are out there doing this kind of work, um, making sure their voices get further, and then making sure that as many people as possible who are knowledgeable, truly knowledgeable on these topics are accessible to people um, so that people also understand that we um, we care a lot, right? we are uh, wanting to make a difference we are wanting to protect people we are wanting to um, make sure that um, people aren't harmed in the epidemic and it's sometimes easier to understand that when it comes um, when it comes from individuals as well so exactly a lot of reasons to do this many of us who are doing this we're already doing it for quite a while before so we Have experienced that before. We know why it's effective. Um, And it's kind of just like we all got together finally and said, that's it. (laughs) And we're going to, you know, get together and, you know, do this, you know, officially for responding to COVID. And well, people people
0: want to get onto this. They can just Google scienceupfirst. dot com uh, or hashtag scienceupfirst, uh, and uh, that's the portal and to all these other. Uh, if you got a social yeah. media account, you're in. Uh, and we invite and encourage people to do that. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and thank you for taking the initiative on uh, this very worthwhile project. I really appreciate it.
2: Ah, uh, thank you so so much for covering it, and we are there for everyone. So. Uh, so come and check us out and uh, and get involved. This is for all Canadians.
0: Exactly. Thanks again, Doctor. Yeah.
2: Thank Dr. you. Dr. Tara
0: Moriarty, I'm science Up first and associate professor at uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get back to what's happening with frontline workers. I know that, and you see this all the time, and we've been talking about it since the pandemic really started to rear its ugly head in North America. Uh, about the uh, the salute to our frontline workers and, and the first responders and the people that do such an incredible job of uh, of battling this pandemic and uh, saving lives as much as they possibly can. But there's a price to be paid for that uh, with with the frontline workers in hospital situations, especially with nurses. And uh, there's an interesting piece that I think sheds some light on just what kind of an impact it has. Uh, It's called Goodbye Through a Glass Door and Emotional Experiences of Working in COVID-19 Acute Care Hospital Environments. Uh, The author, Dr. Jennifer Lapham, is a professor in the School of Nursing at Ryerson University uh, and uh, joins us on the bill kelly show to talk about this doctor thank you so very much for the time good to have you with us today
3: thank you so much bill
0: what the piece does and, it, and it's fascinating uh it's 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 a walk through uh what goes on and, and the kind of pressures on a daily basis uh that uh, the people that are in those environments are working on uh, and and as we've heard from so many of them and i think you you characterize it quite nicely in the piece doctor uh the pressures and the angst does not leave when the shift is over
3: That is so true. We conducted this research as uh, part of the first wave of COVID, and we explored the emotional experiences of nurses working in COVID-19 acute care hospital environments across the greater Toronto area, and nurses were from six different hospitals. And what we found was that the intensity and the perpetual nature of these strong and distressing emotions are really quite overwhelming for nurses leading to trauma, and even what many describe as traumatic stress, or what we generally would know as PTSD. And these feelings don't go away at the end of their shift. So I had nurses talking to me as part of this research that would talk about the fear and uncertainty, particularly during those early waves when we didn't know much about the virus. And they would talk about going home and that fear of, Could have I caught it from my patient? Could I transmit it to my loved ones, to my family members? And so we had nurses walking in the doors of their houses or their apartments, and their children might run to them, and they said, no, don't come near me, don't come near me, don't hug me. I need to have a shower. And even their kids were asking, are you going to die, Mommy? Are you going to die, Daddy? So you can imagine those emotions are so, so powerful.
0: Yeah, there's there's a body of work i mean when it comes to medical science doctor you know with so many different things that frontline workers can deal with but your your point is well taken and I, that's one of the things i heard from a number of people that were especially as you say in the first wave they didn't know what they were mm-hmm. dealing with i mean it changed from almost day to day week to week uh you know the you know how it's transmitted the, the impact it could have oh wait a second this is presenting itself in a much different way than it did with that other patient uh, and there's just there, there's there's nothing you can actually say okay i think i got a handle on this because it was always changing.
3: Absolutely, and nurses were doing their job about trying to learn about uh, how the virus was being transmitted, how to protect themselves. Um, And and there was a feeling in those early days particularly that they felt like uh, they were almost being like a sacrificial lamb because they were, and, and those words were used by our nurses, because they were putting their lives at risk, And oftentimes, depending on the hospitals they worked on, depending on the units they worked on, there might have not been sufficient, (coughs) gives me, sufficient personal protective equipment for what we all now know as PPE. Um, Or if there was PPE, it wasn't high-quality PPE. And nurses were also dealing with things they hadn't dealt with at this level before. And so there was this constant Um, again, fear of transmission, but then they were dealing with deaths and dying of patients um, in an increased manner, but also in a way that they've never felt before. So many times uh, in the early days that we weren't allowed to have family members present. um, So, you know, it might have been a death uh, where you had to help a family member be with their loved one while they died, over video conference, um, so you can imagine a nurse holding up a, you know, an iPad or an iPhone or whatever, um, so that the family member could be with the love their loved one as they died. And the nurses talked about screams that they had never heard before over these video conferences. It's very different when you have dying that happens with loved ones and family members present versus it happening via video conference or happening through a glass door where you can't let the family members enter because of fear of transmission. And so nurses were dealing with this with this anguish and, and loss and grief and they didn't know what to do with the feelings and they were just utterly mentally and emotionally drained. They would go home exhausted, they would sleep And they would wake up exhausted. And many of them were having problems sleeping, having nightmares, um, experiencing depression and anxiety. It was like their emotions were like a roller coaster that was up and down.
0: And as they're going through this this terrible process, though, uh, th- there's also this this drive within them to say, "Well, I can't take time off. I've got to," th- th- you mm. know. We're short-staffed yeah. as it is. Uh, you know, I got to go back, I, it, it, right back into the breach, as it were, uh, and and go through with this. I mean, it's, it, it, the the pressure is just it 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 multiplied time after time after time. Yep.
3: Yeah. Yes. Nurses. You know, I think as nurses, um, and it's a positive of us, but it's also to our detriment sometimes. That we are really committed to the places that we work, and we are really committed to our patients and our families um, that we care for. And so during these, uh, you know, during the early days of the pandemic, and this is still happening now, um, the workforce is sometimes limited. People are getting sick, nurses are getting sick with COVID, as well as other healthcare professionals. And so there's times when they're working a longer shift or a double shift, and they feel the need to be there to support the patients so that the patients aren't without a nurse because you how could you be, um, but also to support their colleagues. And I think that's one of the as much as there was a lot a lot of distressing emotions that came out of my research, there was also a, an element of positive where Nurses would talk about their resilience um, and this ability to thrive in the face of adversity or in the face of the tragedy that was happening. And also many nurses learned things about themselves that they, they didn't think they could ever make it through something so tragic and so difficult. And so, you know, building on that resilience is really important. But I can't neglect the fact that many nurses were bottling up their emotions, that they didn't feel like they could move away for their, from their emotions. It was always with them day and night, whether they were at work or at home. And so they, many of them were really struggling, and many of them didn't feel comfortable reaching out or didn't feel they should reach out because they felt Like, I've got to be strong. I've got to be strong through this for my patients, for my colleagues, but also for my own family as well
0: well i was going to ask you about that where's the release uh the pressure is in the work environment certainly and and when i say at the end of the shift sometimes those shifts were a lot longer than than we might think because of of staff shortages uh or or the dedication that that nurse had that said i know technically i'm supposed to go home but i can't leave this this person right now so you you know there were extended shifts but they've taken their problems home i know i talked to an awful lot of people over the last year doctor that simply said look i can't burden my family with this you know they've got enough stress going on in their lives my kids aren't going to school uh you know my, my, the spouse maybe is laid off and, and and or worried about you know long-term income and things of this nature uh, there's there's a, their own set of circumstances and a lot of them just said well i've got to internalize this because there's nowhere else to go
3: yeah yeah i think the release kit, for some the release didn't come and that's the problem For others, the release came in multiple ways. So um, for some, they said, you know, I would find myself in the shower just crying. And that was a release for them, um, but but it is also somewhat isolating. Um, There was also times where they would really emphasize how important the camaraderie was among fellow nurses and also fellow healthcare professionals. Um, But they really felt this idea that, you know, You know, no one can understand what they're going through unless you've been through it. So as much as you might be able to share with a family or a friend, they haven't been through it like a fellow colleague, a fellow nurse has. And so they really felt like we're in it together and we're here to support one another. I recall one story of a nurse talking about how at the beginning of their shift, they all stood together in a circle, all the nurses. And they, they prayed, and it didn't matter what religion any nurse was, or if they were religious or not. They held hands and they prayed that how their shift was going to be, and that every, they were going to be okay, and that their patients were going to be okay. And, and that's just so powerful how they could come together, no matter you know what your background or what your culture or what your religion. But they also talk about release in terms of getting out, getting out into nature, getting outside, um, watching something funny on the television, um, and just somehow trying to let go of the distress and the emotions that were at work.
0: How do? How do? People in that position, though, doctor, handle that particular kind of stress. Um, you know, especially in those early days, you know, you don't want to contract the virus because you've seen how devastating it can be. Uh, and, and so let's, uh, lots of us took precautions. I mean, I've been working from home for almost a year now. Lots of other people Mm -hmm. I know are in the same situation. You know, I, I don't go out very many places. I maybe go to the pharmacy and a grocery store once in a while. Uh, but nay, these people, They're they're right there. They're they're not avoiding the pandemic. They're facing it head on. And I know that you've got some anecdotal information from your research from some of the nurses saying, "Is this the day I'm going to get it? You know, what's going to happen to me? How bad is it going to be?" Uh, And you can't you can't just push that out of your mind, can you?
3: You you can't. Um, And you know, I just remember so many things that the nurses, as part of this research, said, um, and they talked about. going to work was almost like walking into a fire um, because they didn't know what it was going to be like. They didn't know what they were going to face that day. They didn't know how bad it was going to be. And that's a really difficult situation um, to feel like going to work, um, the uncertainty associated with that, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. And so you know, we, we just felt, you know, doing this research, and we, I did it amongst a, a collaborative group of colleagues, both professors at Ryerson University at the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing, as well as one of the top hospitals here in Toronto. And we published this work in the Canadian Journal of Nursing Research because we know that nurses throughout the country and globally are dealing with these same issues of, fear of uncertainty, of isolation, burnout, exhaustion. They're just feeling like they are drowning in their emotions. And as healthcare leaders, we have a responsibility to act and support them.
0: Uh, absolutely we do. And uh you know we've talked about some of the tragic outcomes of some of this too there were and, and mm-hmm. have been uh, many of those frontline workers that have actually contracted uh, COVID-19 uh, some fatally sadly uh, there's yeah. also because of the pressure that you've talked in the stress levels uh, that seem I guess for some people uh, doctor insurmountable uh, there have been people who mm-hmm. committed suicide in the, are those frontline workers as well the doctors and nurses uh, that are yeah. sadly in that set of circumstances too it's it's a story we don't hear a whole lot about but we need to pay attention to it because of of what they're doing and the sacrifices that they're making for the rest of us.
3: Absolutely. And we often don't hear about the the suicides that are happening amongst healthcare professionals, including nurses, sometimes because it's stigmatized, um, sometimes because they, they don't want to share how vulnerable it is to feel like your pain and your suffering and your anguish is so strong and so distressing that they don't feel an end in sight to it, or they don't feel that there's a cure for what they're going through. And unfortunately, sometimes in Ontario, we know that this has resulted in suicide of several nurses and other healthcare professionals as well.
0: This is called goodbye. And, Go ahead. Go ahead, Doctor. Yeah,
3: Go ahead.
0: No, you go ahead. No, just to say, we're just about out of time. We just want to remind people that, uh, that they can read this uh, and get some insight into this. It's uh, it's well worth uh, the read uh, to give some perspective on exactly what's going on. It's called Goodbye Through a Glass Door, Emotional Experiences of Working in COVID-19 Acute Care Hospital Environments. Uh, Google that. Uh, there are a number of different places where you can find this, and it's going to give you much different ideas exactly what's going on on a daily basis uh, when you go through those doors in a, in a primary care facility like this. Uh Great piece, Doctor. Thank you so much, first of all, for the for the work and research you've done in this. And thank you for uh, spending some time with us today.
3: I really appreciate you having me on here today, Bill. I think um, in terms of moving forth, we just need to systematically, as healthcare leaders and hospitals, um, work at supporting nurses' mental health and acknowledging them for the work that they're doing. So thank That's- you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, doctor. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Lapham, uh, professor of school of nursing at Ryerson University. Check that piece out if you do. Well, make time for it. Uh, it's, it's well worth the read. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 CHML.